Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer has us back in the series, Work Out Your Faith. Have you ever wanted to make a deal for something you just had to have, and afterward regretted it? We can all probably grab a few moments like that. Esau did just that and missed out on the blessing of his birthright. Spiritually, we can do the same. Jesus has given us the opportunity to accept him as Lord of our life or reject him. We can inherit the kingdom of God through repentance and faith, or we can miss it and never be a part of it. Once we miss it, there's no going back. Hey, if you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Pastor Heath with today's message, A Warning to Esau. in chapter 12 and put on your thinking caps this morning. This morning's passage is going to be a bit on the theological side and don't groan when you hear that. Theology is the most important thing you can learn in life. Theology, what you know to be true of God has everything to do with how you view this universe, how you view relationships, how you view your life's purpose. Hebrews chapter 12, our message this morning is an extension of our last message in Hebrews. Uh, Verse 18, where our text will begin today, begins with the word for, which means we need to connect what we're about to say today to something that was said previously, in this particular case, in verse 14. Verse 14 commanded us to strive for peace with everyone, and also to strive for the holiness without which no one We'll see the Lord. If you were here uh, the last time we talked in Hebrews 12, you know that word strive is often, most often translated persecute. You're pursuing somebody for a purpose. You're trying to, a purpose is driving you to take hold of, to make a difference. Okay, so this word strive means to pursue, to follow hard after, that you're driven internally by a principle. Not only just to be at peace with all men, but to strive to give effort to to be a holy individual, to be a holy person. The mark of a Christian is not that we're perfectly holy. If you know anybody who's perfectly and holy here today, go ahead and point them out, that we may tithe to them. We have nobody perfectly holy here. What really marks the Christian from the unbeliever is that battle within that Galatians 5 talks about, that war of the flesh against the spirit, the outer man versus the inner man. There's a battle going on for control of your life. True believers, what marks us as a true believer is not that we're flawless, but that we desire to be. We desire to be holy as God is holy, that we are striving for. We have not just given ourselves over to sin, as Romans 6 says, to give ourselves over to sin, to submit ourselves to sin as servants. We don't just give in and say, well, you know, I really hate having to fight against my flesh, so I'm just going to kind of go with it. I'm going to live in continual, habitual, perpetual sin. Uh, one who does so, who views themselves as a religious person, but who has given themselves over just to doing what they want and what feels good, is Esau. Remember the example when he said, strive for holiness without which no man will see the Lord. The example he gives right after that is Esau. Now we know the story of Jacob and Esau, don't we? Those twins. Esau was the firstborn, the one who was supposed to receive the birthright. He didn't really value this spiritual blessing so much. Remember, he sold his birthright, this spiritual blessing, 
for a pot of stew. And we kind of look at that today and we laugh. We're like, that's ridiculous to trade something of significant spiritual value for something temporary and earthly. But you know, when we think about it, we all do the same thing as Americans, don't we? Do you know any Americans who trade the spiritual for the earthly? Those who, who trade you know, Christ for their career? Those who trade their hobbies you know, instead of holiness? And so we do this all the time. We have many who live like Esau. Uh, why shouldn't we live like Esau? You know, in the spirit of the 60s, if it feels good, do it. Why shouldn't we do this? Well, the text says, uh, we shouldn't live like Esau, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it, the blessing of God, with tears. Okay, what I want you to notice here with Esau, and we're making a big deal of this, okay, uh, on purpose, and you'll see why. Esau is somebody who desires religious things. Esau is somebody who grew up in a religious family. He is somebody who desired a religious outcome in his life. He desired to inherit the blessing. He desires all these things. The problem is, desiring spiritual things isn't what makes you a Christian, per se, Desiring to go to heaven when you die. The fact that you want to go to heaven and not hell when you die does not mark you as a Christian. It marks you as everybody in the world. Is there anybody, do you know a single lost person who wants to go to hell? Oh, there's people, a few who will say, oh, I want to go to hell, it's where my buddies are. Uh, they haven't contemplated hell. When you talk to the average person, you share the gospel with people, I have yet to meet a person who says they long for hell. In fact, most of the time when I share the gospel with people, they want to go to heaven and they think they're already getting there. The problem is they live like Esau. And the problem with Esau, Esau is a person, like I said, who's deeply in a religious family and desires spiritual outcomes for their life, but they live in continual, habitual, perpetual sin. They have no longing for spiritual things. These are people who trade spiritual things for earthly things all the time. Esau, friends, is not a believer. Read Romans. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Esau, even as we speak today, is awaiting the eternal damnation of the fires of hell. You don't want to be an Esau, somebody who is religiously inclined, but not converted. And so this message here in Hebrews 12 is a warning to Esau. And it, and it addresses a couple of different fallacies. One is that we view God uh, as under the Old Testament law and that God is just this God of judgment and I want to uh, avoid him and I fear him and I'm constantly striving to earn his favor. I gotta do these things to make God like me. That's an error. Another error is to say that we live under a God of grace only and that because God is a God of grace, I can live however I want and God is duty bound by his nature to forgive me so I can do whatever I feel like. You know, it's somebody, I want to live like the world, but I want to inherit heaven. And so this message, we've called it a warning to Esau. And God gives this warning beginning in verse 18, do not approach God your own way. He says in verse 18, now he's going to give a, a description that will seem a little unfamiliar to most of us. The Jews will know immediately what he's talking about. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness, and a gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. We read that and we're like, what? <laughs> What's, I didn't get that story in VBS. I don't know that story at all. 
after Egypt, when God freed them from Pharaoh, they're out in the wilderness. Uh, it comes to a point in time God is combining them into this nation that will be ruled by God. It will be a theocracy, and it's going to be governed by God's laws. And so one of, their, one of their first stops, if you will, in the wilderness was to a place, a mountain called Mount Sinai. It's where God delivered the law. Remember when Moses, he goes up on the mountain? You ever seen the Ten Commandments? He goes up on the mountain, you know, and, he, and all, there's all this gloom, this darkness, and this flashing, and this lightning, and thunder, because our God is a great and mighty God, and to humans, he, at times even a terrifying God. And that is what he is describing here, this physical mountain on Sinai. You can read about it in Exodus 19 and 20. Exodus 19, 21 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. They weren't allowed to approach God at Sinai. Israel is still in their sin. And God exists in perfect and complete holiness so he's like, for me to be holy, it means to be set apart. I'm, that God is even separated from his people because of their sin. So we don't just get to waltz into the presence of God all cavalier. We don't just get to show up at heaven demanding God take, uh, take us in and showing him our resume. This is why I deserve to be here. We are not allowed to approach God any way that we wish, any more than they were in the Old Testament. Uh, these people were in a very unholy state at this time. Remember, many of them even were unbelievers. While on the mountain, what will these people shortly do? They're going to make a golden calf and they're going to worship it and say, this is what led us out of Egypt. These are people, remember, their whole life has been spent where? Not in Israel. Israel wasn't around really at that time. They're Israel. They were in Egypt and Egypt was a wicked place. They had so many gods it's like a Hindu temple. It is all these different gods for everything. And they lived wickedly. I mean, such was their Pharaoh that he's willing to kill all kids two and under. And so they lived in a wicked place that spoke wickedly and lived wickedly, lived immorally. When they came out of that land, all of that sin which they thought was normal was still attached to their heart and life. You know, and so they were still living very wickedly and they, they aren't allowed to approach God in their wickedness. And to some degree, we, there is some parallel here even to how we live. Friends, we don't live in a Christian nation right now. You make your cases. But if you look around, the vast majority of us are not living like Christ. I mean, you say, well, tri-state area. I was just listening to a podcast I've told you before recently. Less than 6% of us in the tri-state area even go to church. No, we don't live in some grand, glorious nation right now that by and large lives like and worships God. We live in a nation like Egypt who serves many gods, most, most notably ourselves, as we have elevated ourselves to the place of God. And so Israel has come out of Egypt, but they still have Egyptian thinking. They still feel like the way that they lived and the people around them lived in Egypt is the right way to live. And that's, that's like us today. We live in Egypt. We live in a land that does lots of wicked things. Uh, and we become accustomed to it. We start to think that, you know, it's okay if you use bad language. It's just, it's just how people speak today. And what is language after all? It's just air coming out of your lungs and, you know, it, it's not a big deal. But God says, let no corrupting speech come out of your mouth. So it's a big deal to God. You know, we live in a land that says, you know, sexual immorality is okay. You can watch it in your movies. It's no problem. It won't hurt you. You can handle it. And we, we live out sexually immoral lives. Often, even people who go to church, we're, we're living together before marriage, and we say, well, that's perfectly fine because everybody around us does that. 
The problem is, is when we say that, when we feel that way, we have judged the word of God and we've no longer obeyed it. Does it matter if I agree with God that something should be sin? It doesn't. If God says it's sin, it's sin. It's sort of like when my wife and I inadvertently became criminals. Don't take that too far. Don't make that a soundbite. Uh, we visited a country called Singapore. And you go in there and guess what my wife has in her purse? She is uh, one of the great gum chewers of this planet. And so we're bringing in all this gum. Do you know what's not, not legal in, in Singapore? You can't, you can't bring in gum. You can't chew gum in public places. And you hear that, you think, that's really crazy. That's really ridiculous, because as Americans, there's probably half of you chewing gum right now. It, but when you go to Singapore, does it matter if I agree with their gum chewing laws? It does not. All that matters is the governing authority says chewing gum is bad. You can't have it. It's not my job to judge Singapore and say whether or not that's a good law or a bad law. It's the same thing with God's word. We're not called to judge God's word. James even says when we don't obey God's word, we become not a doer, but a judge. I'm gonna decide whether or not God's laws should be God's laws, whether or not it's a good law or bad law, whether it should be sin or, or whether it should not be sin. But such was the nation of Israel as they approached God at Sinai. Exodus 20, verse 18 says, Now when all the people saw the thunder... Ah, oh, see, you're going to see our text in Hebrews 12 right here. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. When unholy people like you and I, we come into the presence of a holy God, there's never a sense in which we deserve to be there. There's always a, this sense, I deserve to die. Even Isaiah, godliest man of his day, Isaiah chapter six, enters into the presence of the Lord, and how does he feel? Woe unto me, I deserve divine judgment. I'm a man of unclean lips. He sees his unholiness in the light of God's great holiness. There's no sense in which I deserve to be in God's presence, only a great trembling sense of impending doom. That's why anytime God reveals himself to man, they always fall on their face, and the first thing God has to say is fear not. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to destroy you. And that's how Israel felt there at Sinai. You know, I always think it's funny in worship, a lot of times people call out and they're like, I just wish the presence of God would fall on this place. I wish the presence of God were right here. Let me tell you, friends, theologically, no, you don't. You don't want the presence of God in this place right now. You would be terrified. How do I know? Look back here when Israel was in the presence of God at Sinai. What'd they say? You go. We're staying as far away as possible. In fact, we don't even want to talk to God. Let God's voice stop to us. You just tell us what God says. So it is a fearful thing, Hebrews 10.31 tells us, to fall into the hands of a living God. God, we sometimes forget that because we live under, under grace today, that God is still a God of wrath. He's a terrifying God. If you are rightly related to God, you have nothing to worry about. If you fall into the hands of a living God, that's a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of somebody refers to the fact that you have an enemy. And to fall into their hands means that you are weaker than them, you've been defeated by them, and you are now at their mercy, and they can kill you. You've fallen into their hands. A Christian, by the way, cannot fall into the hands of the living God because a Christian is no longer an enemy of God. 
And so, but unbelievers, friends, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not given your heart to Jesus, if you're not born again, you are, the Bible says right now, an enemy of God. Now, God is still a God of love, but you are currently, your relationship to him is that of enemy to enemy. And if we die as an enemy of God, you will fall into his hands and God will justly take our life, not simply our physical life, but that will be cast into the lake of fire. That's why it says the Bible, it is a fearful thing to fall into his hands. Scariest thing in the universe, I've told you before, scariest thing in the universe is not Satan. Most terrifying thing in the universe is not his demons, it's not Freddy Krueger, it's not some other you know, horror movie that you've seen. Most terrifying thing in the universe is if you are in your sin and you're standing before a holy God. And that is what God is communicating on Sinai. I am holy, I am great, and don't you trifle with me. Says verse 20, they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. If indeed so terrifying was a sight that even Moses said what? I tremble with fear. Moses is a scared man. And Moses was the godliest one among them. So godly, God, at one point in time, God says, I'm gonna kill all the rest of the Jews. I'm gonna start over with just you, Moses. And even Moses was trembling before God. Such is the nature of our God. But it's said that even a beast could not approach the mountain of God. Uh, no one can approach it. Exodus 19, 12 says, take care not to go up to the mountain or to the, touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. In other words, if you see some goofball go over to Mount Sinai, don't you go get him. Instead, it says, he shall be stoned or shot. Whether a beast or a man, he shall not live. That's when you know you're around something very holy. I mean, whether, you, whether a person goes over there ignorantly or willfully, whether it's your ox that gets loose and stumbles over toward Mount Sinai, or if it's your little pet Boston Terrier Murphy, you know, and he gets out, and he gets away, and he goes to Mount Sinai. He says, don't you go get him. You throw rocks, you throw whatever you got, you shoot that thing, because you don't get to approach God your own way. You will die. In, in God's holiness, you and I, in our sins, we're like mosquitoes to a bug zapper. Okay? Where it's like God is this great, beautiful, like glowing thing. And as we approach him, if we approach him our way when we feel like it, we get close and it's just, bzz, and we're gone. That's what it means to get, go into the presence of a holy God. We will die. And so, man, we're not allowed to approach God any way that we wish, to go to heaven our own way, to just kind of whatever you think gets you into heaven by just being a good person, by doing good things, by coming here to church this morning, or being baptized here, which we will do tonight, or taking the Lord's Supper. Maybe if I take this, maybe that'll somehow earn me something with God. Friends, none of this is going to gain you favor with God. You're approaching God your way. Instead, we have to approach God through Christ. We're gonna see that later. What I want you to see here is even though Israel is God's chosen nation, his chosen people of God, if they approach God their way, religious though they are, they're still going to die. They will still be judged because they're coming to God in their own holiness. There'll be a lot of believers who will have the same result of the Jews at Sinai. We try to approach God our own way through our own religious merit Matthew 7, 22 and 23, what I always call the most terrifying verses of the entire Bible, says on that day, what day? The day where God judges us, okay? When God judges sin, he says on that day, many, not just some, there will be a whole horde of people amongst the lost who actually think they still deserve to be in heaven, that like God made a mistake. And many on that day will say, Lord, Lord. In other words, we have prayed a prayer 
We've said your name. We chanted Jesus as a mantra. We just, I figure if I just say his name, there's power in the name, I'll just, I'll just say the name and then I'm born again. There'll be many who say Lord, they call him Lord. Did we not prophesy? It's a word that means to speak forth divine counsels. You're, you're, you're speaking the word of God. This is a Sunday school teacher. This is a, a, possibly a preacher. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not in your name? Did we not cast out demons and do many mighty works? But what is Jesus' response to these people who are trying to get in to heaven by good things? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me what? He calls them workers of iniquity. In other words, you're living a religious life, but when it comes down to how you actually live outside of church, you're just like everybody else. You talk like everybody else. You live like everybody else. You're immoral in your heart like everybody else. You're greedy like everybody else. You're just storing up all everything on here on earth for you. You're living for you. It's all about you, but you are religious. And so that is Esau. It's a person who is born into religion. They desire religious outcomes. They want to go to heaven. But when it comes down to it, I live just like everybody else in the world. That person is not a believer. It's not, it's not enough just to do religious things or to desire religious outcomes. Sometimes in doing these religious things and trying to get what we desire from God through our own good works, we forget that God is still a God of wrath and he has to deal with our sin. You know, we talk about this, we talk about, especially with New Testament believers, there's a tendency to want to only favor the, the grace side of God, the fact that God forgives, the fact that our God is a loving God. And we want to ignore the fact that God hasn't changed. You wanna show me how theologically ignorant you are, start talking about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, as if they're two separate beings, or as if somehow God flipped a switch and changed. Has God changed? You don't change. We just sang about it this morning. God, you don't change. It's a doctrine we call the immutability, the God's inability to mutate. He does not change. Jesus is the same, Hebrews will tell us, yesterday, today, and forever. God, is, who, is, who is a God of love and mercy today, was also a God of wrath, and he's still these things. The problem is, is that we are under God's forbearance. Paul said in the book of Acts, the times of your former ignorance, when you lived in sin, God winked at, he allowed, he tolerated, but now that you know the truth, he said God commands all men everywhere to repent. And so God, who is this God of love and mercy, is still, is also a terrifying God of wrath. How can we describe God in both of those terms? That God is a great and tender loving God, but he's also a terrifying God of wrath. If you think about it, friends, that's what every father is, isn't he? Now, in my home, we have a very warm, very affectionate, very loving home. Sometimes my daughters are too affectionate. Uh, I will walk through the kitchen, and they will begin to hang on me like one of those Velcro monkeys from the 80s. Any of you ever have one of those? And my daughter will hang on me, and I am dragging my daughter across the kitchen. And I've got to, like, tickle her to get her off me. You know, and they're just, they know that they can approach me. They'll come out there with arms wide open sometimes, and they'll be like, here, or they'll come up and they'll back up for a back scratch. And just, you know, we just have this very warm, affectionate, loving home. They know that I will accept them. They know that I will receive them. They will sit next to me on the couch, and they'll snuggle up to me, and we have a very warm family like that. We just do. That's part of that graceful nature of God that we have. We have a father who's like that, don't we? Romans 8, 15, what is it? The Bible talks about, we refer to God in this Hebrew term, Abba doesn't just mean father, it's an affectionate term like a child might say, daddy. Okay, we can approach God with that kind of intimate familiarity and know that we are immediately accepted in him. 
But our God isn't just that, is he? Like any father, I am warm and affectionate to my daughters, but what about somebody who's not rightly related to me? What about somebody theoretically who breaks a window in my house and intends to do harm to my family? That person who is not rightly related to me, that person who is an enemy of my family, friends, I will now become a terrifying man. Oh, I'm armed. The last thing you will hear is the sound of a shotgun shell being chambered into the gun. I'm not even joking. I will put down anybody who comes into my house and tries to threaten my family. Now, how can one man be both things? How can one man both be both affectionate, loving, and someone you can approach as a daddy, and yet at the same time be the most terrifying thing in the universe to somebody who comes in intending to harm my family? That's what every father is. That's what our father is like. If you're rightly related to God, friends, we approach God's throne boldly in Christ, and we know that at his throne we find mercy and grace and acceptance and love. But if you're somebody who is in your sin, you're living willfully and rebellious against God, maybe you're an Esau, you grew up in a, in a spiritual family, and you desire a spiritual outcome, you want to go to heaven, but you're living in continual habitual sin, evidencing the fact that you're not truly a child of God, Friends, you are the enemy of God, and one day, I just want to warn you as strong terms as possible, you will fall into God's hands, and God will no longer be your daddy. He will be the most terrifying thing in the universe. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Friends, we want to make sure we're rightly related to him. Number two, we, see we approach God through Christ. This is how we don't have to be terrified of him. He says in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God. Okay, Hebrews 12 is describing believers in this generation. He says, we're not going back to Sinai. See, under the Old Testament law, the Jews were under a conditional covenant. Maybe you've heard the term Mosaic covenant. A covenant, if you will, is sort of a solemn promise between parties. Sometimes it's a one-way covenant, like God to Abraham. I will do this for you, give you land, seed, and blessing. Sometimes it's a conditional covenant. You do this, and I'll do this. That's what the Mosaic covenant was under the Old Testament. By the way, testament is another word referring to a covenant. We have this Old Covenant and this New Covenant, this Old Testament and this New Testament. Under this Old Testament, under this Old Covenant, this old arrangement that God had with them under this Mosaic covenant, there was, it was conditional. If you do this, I will bless you. If you do evil, I will curse you. And so you were always, if you will, performing so that you can receive the, the blessing of God. He's reminding us here, and specifically, these Hebrew believers of the New Testament, he's warning them, don't go back to Sinai. Don't go back to the Old Testament law. You're not under law anymore. You don't, as a believer in Jesus, you don't have to perform to make God love you. Now, don't take this too far, but you don't make God love you more by attending more church services. You don't make God love you more because you put more in the offering envelope. You don't make God love you more and treat you with goodness and kindness because you serve in children's church. You don't have to earn the favor of God. We just live under grace. Now, if you're truly converted, you don't need that kind of childish motivation. Just like you as adults, I mean, how many of you guys were bribed to come to church with candy? That's insulting, isn't it? You gotta give me candy to come to church? That's insulting. I'm an adult. And so as believers, as sons of God, no longer children, but sons, we're mature, we're adults, we long instinctively to do these things. I wanna be in church. I wanna give to God. I wanna invest in something that matters. I wanna serve. I wanna be used to glorify God. 
And that's, that's the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31 says, there's gonna come a day, I'm gonna take this law and it's not gonna be in your hands. You're not gonna obey it out of fear. You're not gonna obey it just because you wanna get something from God. It's gonna, he says, I'm gonna write my law on your heart. You're going to desire from the inside to do these same things that were contained in the law. But now the motivation is different. You want to do these things. And so Hebrews 12 is reminding us we're not like approaching Sinai anymore. Instead, we're approaching a different mountain to Mount Zion. Zion, if you remember, it's uh, often referred to as Jerusalem. Uh, it was called that way because in 2 Samuel 5, David captured a Jebusite fortress and made that his palace. Zion is the, the dwelling place of God. And Jerusalem was considered that because that was the place where David brought the ark of the covenant. <clears throat> you remember that thing that Indiana Jones was looking for? The Ark of the Covenant? The Ark, an Ark is a box. That's why Noah, he got into an Ark. It wasn't a boat, he wasn't going somewhere. It was just a box that meant to float and save his family. And so it, an Ark is a box that was overlaid with gold and it, it was a picture of the manifest presence of God on earth. Where the Ark was, that was the presence of God. And so because of that was in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was considered Zion, the dwelling place of God. And on top of that ark was the lid, it was a mercy seat. And every year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the priest would go in and he would flick blood on that, what is called the mercy seat to atone for the people's sins you know, for that year. It was a picture of what Jesus would become. Why don't we have the Ark of Covenant today? Anybody know where the Ark of the Covenant is? Would you tell us? Because everybody's looking for it. We're not sure what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. I know some people say they know where it is and it's hidden somewhere. And you have some select weird Illuminati group you know, that's looking out for it. Truth is, we don't know where it's at. We don't know if God had it destroyed. We don't know if God just simply removed it. Some people theorize that God you know, whisked it away to heaven. We don't know. What we do know is we don't need an Ark of the Covenant today, do we? Why not? Because Jesus is the Ark of the New Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was, an, was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box representing the old covenant that man had with God. Jesus is that for us today. He is God's manifest presence on earth. It is Jesus' own blood that was sprinkled, if you will, on that mercy seat once and for all that makes men right with God. And so we don't need an Ark of the Covenant today. We don't need to be looking for it. If we did, God knows there would be some kind of cult, you know, the Church of the Ark, We'd all want to go to that church and somehow draw near to God in a physical way. That's not what we do, and that's the point of Hebrews 12. We don't approach God in this physical thing. In this, it's a spiritual presence of God that we are seeking now. He says, verse 22, uh, we've appro we're approaching Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and angels, innumerable angels in festal gathering. And so the 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 God that we approach, the mountain we approach, is no longer Mount Sinai, a physical mountain, and we believe God for physical blessings. We're approaching Mount Zion, the dwelling place of God, which is no longer Jerusalem. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant. The dwelling place of God is where God is in what is called, not Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem, heaven. And so we're approaching that mountain. So this isn't a physical mountain. It can't be touched, our text says. It cannot be touched, but it can be approached. 
We can approach New Jerusalem. We can desire to come near to it. We can draw near. It used to be that Israel had to be far off from God. You had the Ark of the Covenant and it was in a holy of holies. It was covered by a big thick curtain that it said teams of oxen couldn't rip it apart. And then outside of that, you had the place where only the priests could go. Outside of that, you had the, you know, the court of men and the court of women and the court of Gentiles. And there were these big walls all the way around it. A wall is there to keep you out. And under the old covenant, God was saying, stay away. You're not holy. Under the new covenant now, the Bible, remember when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to that veil, that big curtain where the Ark of the Covenant was? It was ripped from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, that's what man would do. Top to bottom, God opened it up. And now we can enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. That we can boldly approach God, not with fear, like under Mount, Mount Sinai, where we think we're going to die, where we are unholy. Why now can we approach God? Why can we come straight to God and talk to God in prayer and approach him, and not through a priest, but directly? Because you have been made holy. In Jesus Christ, under this new covenant, we're going to talk about it with the Lord's Supper. It's a new covenant in his blood. In his blood makes the vilest sinner clean. So now we don't have to be scared about approaching God. We can jump on his lap and say, Abba, Daddy, because he has opened us up a new way in Christ. That is the mountain that we approach today. He's warning these Hebrew believers, don't go back to the old covenant, the old system where you're far from God, where you didn't live in practical holiness, where there were walls separating you and God, where you did things to try to impress God, you did things to, to improve God's blessing upon your life, you're under the new covenant. And so we need to approach him there. In verse 23, he says, we, we come to the new Jerusalem. He calls it the general assembly. That's a, a general assembly is where everybody who is supposed to be there is there. It's a plenary session. Everybody is there. And then he describes, he says, to the church of the firstborn, I'm using the NAS here because I think the ESV is a little weak in its reading on this verse. To the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who is at this general assembly in the new Jerusalem, this new Zion, this Mount Zion, this spiritual place, the spiritual dwelling of God? Who's there? Well, we know God is there. We just read about a whole bunch of angels, not just a few. Remember, it was a few angels who were present at the delivering of the law in Sinai, but under the new covenant, who's, who's there? An innumerable host of angels and festal gathering. It's like a feast. It's a celebration. Who is at the celebration where God and the angels are present? He mentions a couple of groups of people. He talks about the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones of the firstborn who are enrolled. That is new covenant believers, New Testament believers. That's you and I. Who else is there? A distinct group who says who are now in spirit form but made perfect. I believe this is describing Old Testament saints. So God has Old, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers. They're distinct and yet they're a single people of God and they're all there in this general assembly. Now, how do both Old and New Testament believers approach this new Jerusalem? How do they approach God? How do they get entrance? He says in verse 24, we do it the exact same way. He says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now this is gonna need some explanation. Understand that Hebrews has been building up to this point. 
that he wants to see that these Jews who are tempted to return to the old ways, to the old law, to the old traditions, to just religious formalism, to leave that behind, leave Sinai, and begin to now approach Mount Zion. Not Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. To, an, to a mountain that can't be touched, but it can be approached. You need to come through Christ who is the mediator of a new covenant whose who sprinkled blood speeds a better word than that of Abel. Now, do you remember who Abel is? Adam and Eve's kid, remember? One who got tragically murdered. Got your attention now? Abel. He is the man who is the first man who in, is in recorded scripture offered God the first, well, or at least the first recorded blood sacrifice. He gave God the sacrifice he desired. And it had to be blood because it was going to be a picture of what Jesus would be one day. That's Abel. And so he's using Abel like a metaphor to describe the whole old system of approaching God through the blood of animals. Okay, he says that the blood of Christ is, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That we no longer need to go back to animal sacrifice. Aren't you glad that when you came to church today, y'all didn't have to bring a goat with you? Some pigeons? Aren't you glad we, this altar here has the Lord's Supper and, not, and we're not like you know, slitting animals' throats and lighting them on fire? I mean, we might get more people to come. We don't do that anymore. In AD 70, God made sure we couldn't go back to that. What did God do? He destroyed the temple. He destroyed the temple. They turned it over brick by brick. brick. They stole all the gold from it. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. There's no altar. There's no, there's no place where the priests can gather. And just to make sure that we can't rebuild it and go back to it, I believe God himself made sure that the Muslims built a Dome of the Rock. You're not gonna get back there. Now, someday that Dome of the Rock is gonna be gone because we know the temple will be rebuilt. But in God's timing, even this horrible thing where the Temple Mount now has the Dome of the Rock instead of the temple, friends, it's so that we can't go back to the Old Testament system of offering just mechanical worship to God, external things so that I can get a blessing from God. We are approaching the new Jerusalem. We have the blood of Christ who is the mediator of a better covenant. Remember that this old system of the Old Testament, uh, Hebrews 10.1 said, for since the law is but a shadow Y'all have a shadow, don't you? You go outside. Is that shadow you? No, but it does look like you. It's shaped like you. It shows that you're near. The Old Testament is shaped like God, but it's not the reality. It's, it's, it's not the form of God. He says the law is but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. But it can never, by the same sacrifices, continually offered every year, these sacrifices can't do it. Make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the old system, the old covenant, you had this Bible in front of you, you obeyed it because you wanted to get stuff from God. But in the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 32, this law is written on our hearts. I want to obey God. I desire to please him. I want to glorify God. I do these things uh, innately and instinctively. This Bible has now made perfect. It, it has fundamentally altered who I am. I desire new things. I've been changed in Christ, converted, not just forgiven. It says that Jesus is now the mediator of a new covenant. And friends, be glad you're in the new covenant. This is the other danger of being in the new covenant is that we still live like we're under the old covenant and that we still think God hates me if I, you know, whenever I sin, now God hates me. Or, if, or I have to do good things. If I don't have my quiet time in the morning as I'm driving to work, no wonder I got all these red lights. I forgot to do my Bible time. 
You know, or I didn't give God my, my full money or whatever I was gonna do. I didn't serve like I was supposed to. I didn't do this or I did that bad thing. So obviously God hates me now because I've done wrong things. Friends, what, what has God done with all of our sin? Colossians 2, he has everything that was against us, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. It was a legal document. It was a rap sheet. The Bible says has been nailed to the cross. And so God no longer associates you with your sin. You need to know that so that you can live under grace and not law. And so that's another equal danger that we approach God as if, as, if he's still, as if we're still under the Mosaic Covenant. I do good things to get stuff from God. I avoid bad things simply so that God won't hurt me. That's, that's not how we approach him today. Instead, Jesus is the mediator. A mediator, not the rock that falls from the sky. You'll pick up on it later. Uh, a mediator, what does he do? He is someone who goes in between two people, doesn't he? And he takes two warring parties and he brings them together. He brings them back to a state of reconciliation, to a place of peace. And only Jesus can do that because he is the only one who is both fully God and fully man united in one body forever. Okay? And he, so Jesus, being God, <clears throat> can fully satisfy what God desires. That when Jesus came to die on, our, on the cross for our sins, he was perfectly holy. So he didn't die for his sins. Jesus never did sin. So when he died on the cross and being infinitely God, he could cover an infinite number of sins. All the sins of you, all the sins of me, all the sins of the world, should they place their faith in him. But he was also not just fully God, but he was fully man, not partly man. He wasn't Her Hercules. He wasn't half God, half man. That's mythology. Jesus was fully God and fully man. No, it doesn't make good sense to us, humanly speaking, but it's good theology. He was fully man, and he had to be, so that Romans 5, he could, can I lay some theology on you? He could operate as our federal head. He represented us. When an ambassador goes to another country, he represents the entirety of the population of the United States. Jesus represented the entire populace of mankind, past, present, and future. When he died on the cross, it was a sufficient sacrifice for all. Being fully God and fully man allowed Jesus to mediate, to bring man's hand and God's hand back together in him. And so Jesus is the only way that we're ever going to enter Zion. He is the only way, he is the only path. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father, but how? But by me. Now, if you've ever done any uh, international travel, you probably had one of these blue beauties right here. You ever seen a passport? You ever gone overseas? It, mine is thicker than normal because we used to go in and out of the country like it was a hobby. Uh, so we had uh, all kinds of different Think places that we would go. And so this thing is filled with, it's not just my passport. The passport says where I belong now. I belong right now to the United States of America. And then they've got a little picture page in there with a really embarrassing photo. And you know, this shows I belong to America. But what a passport is most useful for is containing pages that are called visas. If you've been to another country, now Americans, we, there are some countries we can walk into and there's some that you can't. China is one of those that you can't. Uh, a visa is special permission from a singular office that gives you permission to enter that country. You have to go through the consulate. And at the consulate, you will send them your passport and they will, um, in this particular case, I've got one here, Chinese visa. A visa is permission from a governing authority. We recognize your desire to be here and we approve of it. 
Now, this visa is very, very important because you can get on a plane from America to China and just have your passport, and you show up in China with no visa. And when you do, you're going to enter into a line, and you're going to visit. You're going to enter through a narrow gate, and you're going to stand before a judge. Okay, that's the border control agent. You're going to stand before this judge, and he's going to open up. I see you are Heath Bauer. Okay, I think that's you. That picture's nasty, but I'm okay. Give me, a, give me a break. I've been on a plane for 20 hours. You know, and I go in there, and he identifies, and then he's looking through here for one particular thing. Ah, here it is, a current visa, and he will check it. And if everything checks out and he sees that the governing authority has approved me to go in, he will stamp my passport and allow me entrance, and now I can enjoy the glories of China. But if I didn't have in my passport this visa, I will be denied entry. Friends, Jesus is our mediator. He is our visa. He is the judge. He is the governing authority. And right now, we have a brief moment of time where God allows us to request from this governing authority permission to enter. But if you wait until you die to request permission to enter, friends, you will be denied entry. Jesus is our mediator. He is our visa. He is our permission to enter. They can enter because I said so. Visa didn't say that Heath is good looking so he can come into China. The visa didn't say Heath has lots of money so he can enter China. It simply said he has permission from this governing authority and so it is with heaven. You don't go to heaven because he says, oh, you're a good looking person. You have a lot of money. You've done a lot of good things. You can enter. He does it simply because he permits you based on the authority of his office and that's what Jesus does for us. So number three, we approach God reverently. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's not me, but that's God. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, when Moses warned them about God on earth, how will we escape him if we reject him who warns from heaven? God is in heaven right now. He's not in this localized representation on earth. He's in heaven. And he warns us how? It's through God's word. When we ignore the Bible... When we ignore God's word, he says, how do you think you're going to avoid the consequences of doing so? In fact, Hebrews 10, 28 and 29 says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, that means you've disregarded it, with, uh, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses under the Old Testament law. If you disobey the law, you can die physically. He says, but it's much worse under the new covenant if you disregard God's law. He says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Now, we trample underfoot things that don't, we don't value, don't we? Any of you ladies in your wedding band, do you have an asphalt wedding band? Any of you guys have a concrete you know, wedding band, you ladies? We don't do that because it's something we trample underfoot. It's valueless. It's worthless to us. So you had a gold and diamonds. Uh, things that we trample underfoot are valueless. So when you go to, used to be when you'd go to Texas Roadhouse, you'd eat the peanut because you value it. What do you do with the shell? You'd throw it on the ground. you walk on it. You trample underfoot the Son of God when we set it aside, we discard it. When I was a kid, uh, eighth grade, we would run track, and we would walk this mile-and-a-half journey from the junior high to the lion's field. And on that journey one day, I was one of the last ones out, and I noticed that there was this fellow outside the school, and I didn't realize it at the time, but he was a Gideon, and he was handing out all these little orange New Testaments. You seen that? And he handed every one of us on the track team these Orange New Testaments, and I took hold of this because I was a believer, and I was like, wow, that's great. Now I have a pocket-sized Bible. 
And so I'm looking through it on the way to track, gave me something to do on the way, and I was reading the front and back and reading the gospel and reading the verses, and I just thought, this is really nifty. And then on my way to the track, we're walking down Highway 18, and I look in the ditch, and I saw the ditch was full of a bunch of little orange books. These people, these friends of mine that I was running track with, they, were, they received the Bible and they discarded it. They set it aside. They trampled underfoot the Son of God. This means nothing to me. I'm taking this pocket New Testament and I'm throwing it into the ditch. And I just remember as a kid being horrified. I'm rescuing as many as I could until I realized I can't carry dozens and dozens of pocket New Testaments. And so this is what it looks like when God gives us his word. It's the most precious thing that God can give us. And when we set it aside, we refuse to read it. We don't value it. We don't live by it. He says, how much worse punishment do you think is gonna happen as a result of that? You have trampled underfoot his word. Verse 26 says, at that time, the time of giving the law on Moses, his voice shook the earth. He says, yet once more, I will shake not only earth, but the heavens. He's quoting Haggai 2, verse six. God's not just gonna shake the earth like an earthquake that changes up the landscape of things, uh, often describing changing of human government. He says, but I'm going to also shake the heavens, and that's gonna happen one day. God isn't just gonna shake the earth and change things up there. He's talking about there's gonna become a day when God will take everything that we have and he's going to shake it. It's just, he says in verse 27, yet once more indicates the removal of the things shaken. That God's gonna take everything that we have here on earth, everything that we love and hold dear, he's gonna shake it, he's gonna destroy everything. Destroy what? He's gonna destroy our home, he's gonna destroy this church building, he's gonna destroy Ashland, he's gonna destroy America, this planet, the stars, the nebula, the universe, every bit of matter that exists in this universe right now, everything we hold dear and call home, God is gonna shake it and it's gonna be destroyed. Second Peter two verse three, or Second Peter three verse 10 rather says, but the day of the Lord when Christ returns in judgment will come like a thief, it's gonna shock you, it's gonna surprise you, it's gonna be sudden. And when he does, he says, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He says, all these things that you're living for right now, your job, putting a new deck on the house, doing all these things, there's nothing wrong with those things. But just understand that everything you invest in here will die someday. It will be destroyed someday. You're gonna pass off your wealth that you have earned and worked so hard for onto your kids who will squander it on a new car, and, and it's gonna be gone someday. And then in the future, everything that we think we've done to build a legacy for ourselves on earth will be destroyed one day, and it's to lead you to a place of despair. Well, then why should I invest more than I have to on planet earth? Bingo. Make some investment, enjoy some of the things God gives you, but everything here is gonna get shaken one day. So 2 Peter 3.11, the very next verse says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, the most important thing about your life is not what you leave for your kids. It's not the kind of car you're driving. It's not the kind of house you're living in. It's not how people view you and think of you as a fine, upstanding individual. What matters is what manner of person ought you to be then in lives of holiness? Verse 28 answers that question. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. That's heaven. Where Jesus said, remember, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where, where moth doesn't come in and corrupt and thieves can't break in and steal. Lay up your, your treasures there. He says to a kingdom that can't be shaken. It's a secure investment. 
And therefore let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. This is a reminder, we do serve a God of grace and he is our Abba, he is our daddy, but we cannot forget that our God is still a consuming fire. This is a warning to Esau. Don't presume upon the grace of God. Don't assume that you're right with God because you're here at church today. Don't presume because you, you've been baptized or took the Lord's Supper, you prayed a prayer, you walked an aisle. Friends, check to see if you're truly converted. Are you striving for holiness? Is that your heart's longing and desire? Because all of this is gonna pass away. What manner of person ought we then to be in lives of holiness? We pursue it. That is really what characterizes the believer is this continual pursuit of holiness, to be like God. And when we are in a holy state because of the holiness of Christ, we can approach him boldly. This is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It will remain. He says, therefore, let us offer God acceptable worship. It has nothing to do with singing. Remember, we talked about in Romans 12, we preached on it in December. Worship is the total life response to the gospel to give God everything. Nothing here matters to me. I, my entire life is gonna get poured out like a drink offering to God. It's our total life response to the gospel, to being born again, to give God all that we have. He says, and we do this with reverence and awe. When I was a, a young fellow, freshman in college, went to Colorado, I've told you before, and a guy who lived in the flatlands of Iowa, it's very impressive to see the Rockies. More impressive was we went to Canyon City and we saw the Royal Gorge there and I approached it with reverence and awe because it was so much greater than me. That's what he means by reverence and awe. We're approaching God who is so much greater than us and we understand how great he is. We approach him reverently, not dismissively, not passively, not you know, just boldly and in a cavalier kind of way. We approach God reverently with awe like I did with the Royal Gorge. I wouldn't even go more than about three feet onto that bridge that spans the Royal Gorge because I was a scared little Iowa boy who just knew flat land. There was no high and low places. There was just corn. And so I'm approaching it with reverence and awe because I understand the greatness. If I trifle with the Royal Gorge, I'm dead. I will tumble headlong into there. And so I wouldn't come but about three feet of the wall and I'm just tiptoeing my feet and looking over because it was, it, was a, it was a terrifying thing. I respected it. It's beauty and I admired it. I drew near to it, but I didn't mess with it. Such is the nature of our God. And our last verse says, for God is a consuming fire. He's reminding us he is a God of grace. He is a God of love. But if you're God's enemy today, if you are not born again, if you don't know that you're a child of God, if you don't know that you're going to heaven when you die, friends, you are an enemy of God. And our God is still a consuming fire. He's not just gonna wink at you and say, boys will be boys. Remember what God did with Sodom and Gomorrah when they were a sinful city? He consumed them with fire. What about Nadab and Abihu who perverted the priesthood? He consumed them with fire. Will God again consume those who are rebel rebels against him? Will he consume them with fire? He will at hell, the lake of fire. Friends, we don't trifle with God. Yes, he is a loving God and we can approach him and his mercy through Jesus Christ, our mediator. But if you're gonna approach God your way and you're gonna go straight over to his holy mountain and you're gonna try to get into heaven your way, you don't have the visa and you will be denied entry. This is a warning to Esau. Just because you wanna go to heaven doesn't mean you're going. Just because you desire spiritual things and you desire God's blessing doesn't mean you're right with God. It just means you want spiritual, thing, spiritual blessing. But we don't get to do that and live in continual habitual sin that outs us as an Esau. 
Let's close. Father, we thank you this morning as we study your word. God, this is a hard passage. It's hard to understand. It's hard to preach. And its implications are really, they're difficult for us to receive. God, we don't like to think that there are Esau's out there. People who grew up in spiritual homes, who desire spiritual outcomes, who desire spiritual blessing, but who live in continual unrepentant sin. That they are unbelievers. People who went to church as a kid people who prayed a prayer, people who walked an aisle. Father, we know that hell will be full of such people. Lord, we know that it is only through coming to Christ as our mediator and allowing him to convert our soul that through repentance you have changed our mind about how we see sin. And we have fully given ourselves to him. We, we, have, we have confessed Christ as Lord. Lord, I pray if there's any here today who has not done that in their life, Lord, today would be that day that they would heed the warning to Esau to strive for holiness without which no man will see the Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we just want to say thanks for spending time with us today. If you'd like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, let us give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people.